Um, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so, hey guys, um, Maxwell, keeping you in suspense for those final three episodes of Relic. I promise that I'm diligently working on the finale, which is going to be a two-parter, or it looks like it's going to be in any case. Um, I just recorded the episode on Yamashita's Gold, which should be released next week if the stars are right. But because we're on a protracted schedule, I wanted to do a little short and sweet episode this week. You'll notice there's no introduction. We're just going to get right to the meat of the matter. And helping me chew through that meat is a very special guest, uh, Courtney from the Cult of Domesticity podcast, who I'm honored to have on the show today. Courtney. Hey. <laughs> um, okay, so what is a cult of domesticity and should we be afraid? Is there cyanide in the Kool-Aid in this cult? There's no cyanide in the Kool-Aid. I might be just carrying whiskey around, though. Perfect. So, um, Can you tell us like a little bit about what the podcast is about? Because I really want people to listen to it because it's so funny. So tell me a little bit about your show. Yeah, so basically Ashley and I were college roommates, and we joked that our dorm room was the cult of domesticity because we were very crafty, we loved to bake, and we loved to like basically watch true crime things, uh... And I would just bore her with my mm-hmm. history homework. Um, and then we decided, hey, you know what? We're pretty funny. We could have a podcast. <laughs> and so that's what we do. Every week we we take turns. One of us will talk about history, true crime. Uh, sometimes we have guests. Uh, our latest episode was about Andrew Jackson. And my friend from grad school, Mike, came on and regaled us with his ridiculous life. Let's I'm not a fan of Andrew Jackson. I'm a fan of hearing about, yeah. Neither are we. I mean, there's a lot of terrible presidents in the U.S. history, but uh, he was definitely up there. Uh, And a lot of the more unsavory presidents seem to be fans of Andrew Jackson, which I've noticed. I think that's very telling. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I I know your podcast isn't, like... targeted to be like a feminist podcast but i think there's just it's very implicitly feminist um and just the subject matter it talks about and this is something i find in true crime feel free to disagree with me here but um <laughs> no and i just think that this i don't know i i'm a big fan of this movement right now where there's a lot of just like female-led uh shows that are talking about true oh, yeah. crime through like the wet like the lens of the woman embodied experience i think it's really important especially when it comes to history and true crime because those stories for so long have not really been um of the of like the female perspective like there's Anne rule and like there's definitely some amazing exceptions to that but um it's just really cool to see and in terms of the adventure genre there's it's not you know there's people like nathan drake and indiana jones in fiction um, and that may lead you to believe that thrill-seeking and treasure-hunting is kind of a man's world. But when you look at history, this is far from the case in real life, which is really cool. Um, like, dur- yeah. Oh, yeah. So during the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, when the Western world was starting to amass more information about previously unexplored parts of the planet, again, by Western standards anyway, there were a lot of women, actually, who were fighting against societal norms and sexism to try and not only explore the globe, but also to do some social good along the way. And in many ways, these women were more altruistic than a lot of their male counterparts at the time. Uh, just a caveat, this is still, this part of history is very problematic for a lot of reasons, the least bit colonial. 
Um, that, that said, there were still some pretty groundbreaking discoveries at, at the time. Uh, there was a lot of activisty things, a lot of civil rights movements that never really existed until that point of history. Um, so a lot of these historical personalities were accomplishing things like that. Uh, do you have any comment on this kind of general part? I mean, you studied it, so I'm yeah, sure you no, have I a did. few comments. I did. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I have many. Um, yeah, it's really exciting, especially just in like academic history, because right now there are so many great women doing work on uh, this type of finding the women, finding these lesser-known characters. Um, like, Philippa Levine does a lot of Victorian British imperial history. Uh, she actually wrote one of my favorite history books uh, that I had to read, which is Prostitution, Race, and Politics, Policing the Venereal Disease in the British Empire. And, I mean, for a book on, like, basically STDs, it is amazing at how it looks on like is it sexist um racist and classist all in one and it's so well done uh linda collie linda collie is a really amazing british historian who takes a interesting look at like these lesser known characters and i could probably i mean i could just pull up my grad school reading list and be like look at these amazing women historians and writing about women even though none of it went into my thesis, sadly, because they were no lower class women writing things. Mm. But I mean, I love seeing that women were traveling more in the like the British Empire and around than most people give them credit for. And I'm glad they're finally getting their dues. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. And um, not to be sexist, but I am going to start first. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to start first with uh, a shorter story. And it's it's short for reasons I think will become clear in terms of um, this woman's background. It's unfortunately there's not a whole lot written about her. And I, I suspect why. But this is uh, Bessie Coleman, the otherwise known as Queen Bess. Not actually a queen. Well, a queen in her own right, but you'll see. So... Uh, Coleman was born on January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas. I didn't know there was an Atlanta, Texas. She was the 10th of 13 children, uh, and her family were sharecroppers. Uh, she was of African-American and Cherokee descent, so a uh, biracial uh, woman of color. She, her, her family moved to a place that I think I'm going to pronounce as Waxahachie, Texas. Uh, and she lived there until age 23. As she went to school, she would walk four miles each day to a segregated one-room schoolhouse. She loved to read. Uh, she was great at math. She excelled at academics and had to f fight really hard for it. She completed all eight grades, which was pretty uh, remarkable at the time, uh, regardless of where you were in terms of class and race in the United States. Um, unfortunately, a lot of her education was interrupted by the cotton harvest. There was a reason why the family had so many children. They would have to go out into like the fields because they were sharecroppers. And that is a history that I encourage everyone to look up. It's really depressing and terrible. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, so yeah. she lived in a place called Indian Territory, which speaking of Andrew Jackson, <laughs> the reason why we have that is largely because of the Trail of Tears. A lot of um, Native American or American Indian uh, tribes and clans were relocated to Oklahoma. 
And she, of course, was connected to this. She was going to go to college and she got in, I believe, on a scholarship, but she ran out of funds really quickly. Uh, she also did not get along with her family. And I they don't say why. And I don't like to fill in the blanks because I think that's really presumptuous. But just based on the reading I've done, I'm going to guess it had something to do with the fact that she was really into her education, but she was being called back to like always you do this manual labor. I'm sure there were other reasons, too. They're not disclosed, which is just one of those unfortunate lost histories. Um, blame racism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Institutionalized racism. That's really why. <laughs> um, so oh, she yeah. had, ended up moving in with her brothers, who were really cool, uh, in Chicago in 1916. She worked at the White Sox, like the baseball team, uh, their barbershop, where she worked as a manicurist. And she was really popular. She apparently had a really great personality. She seems cool. Just reading this, I would have loved to hang out with her. <laughs> but while she was in the barbershop, she would hear stories from pilots who'd return home from World War I. Now, World War I was the first war where planes were used in combat scenarios. Uh, it was still largely a new technology, but it created this whole new economy. So flight schools were starting to open up in the U.S. Now, Bessie wanted to learn how to become a pilot, but there were two problems with this. Aviation schools did not admit people of color or women, and Beth Bessie was both. So she happened to be uh, good friends with Robert S. Abbott, who's also a really cool guy. Uh, he ran the Chicago Defender, which was one of the first premier Black-owned newspapers in the city. He told her that the rest of the world was a bit more open-minded than the United States, which is still true to this day. Um, and she might yeah. find success studying abroad, actually. So Bessie was so determined that she studied French, moved to France, like learned a language just to learn something else. <laughs> I could not even imagine doing that. Uh, she moved to France in 1920, oh, yeah. which is probably the coolest time to be in France ever. Um, and on June 15th, 1921, she became the first woman of African-American and Native American descent to earn an aviation pilot's license and the first person of African-American and Native American descent to earn an international aviation license from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. That was my attempt at French. Um, and this, what's cool about this beyond that was this was two years before Amelia Earhart learned like became a pilot so yeah she was really the first um and she became a rising celebrity and people fell in love with her uh she was a little bit of an underdog and she was also damn good at what she did so she returned to the U.S. and became a media darling like overnight sensation uh the problem excuse me the problem was that she needed gainful employment now we had flight but the technology hadn't gotten to the point yet where people could ride in larger planes with multiple passengers. Um, so commercial flights weren't just didn't we didn't have the technology for it. It wasn't happening. So while there was an aeronautic economy, like a fledgling economy, there it wasn't like the industry it is now. Um, so instead, she resorted to becoming a trick pilot who would perform aerial stunts, which is also known as barnstorming. It was just like basically like circus arts via plane. It's just the coolest stuff, just aerial stunts. She just, like, it's, I can't really do just the stuff that she did justice, but, like, she would do just, like, tricks and loops and all that cool stuff. Um, but she wanted to hone her skill. But the U.S. was like, you're awesome, but you're still black and a woman. So she was like, screw you guys. She flipped them the bird and went back to France to develop her craft. Um, and that's this is where a lot of her adventure comes in. She flew all around Europe. She everywhere she went, she captivated the hearts of millions, and she became known as Queen Bess, which she's definitely a queen in her own respect. Um, but yeah, so she's still overshadowed in history by Amelia Earhart. I didn't know about her until I started doing the research on this topic. 
um it's she's definitely someone that needs more coverage um despite the obvious racial bias back home in the u.s both white and black americans adored her um also because if you want to see a picture of her which i'm going to send to you she is perhaps one of the most beautiful women i have ever seen um so i'm going to send this to you now send okay just to get an eye there's a few pictures of her uh Hmm. Well, there we go. Speaking of technology, I can't figure out Skype. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you'll see. Oh. Yeah, she's stunning. Um, but she's she's like fierce. She's giving you like yeah, she is. You. She's serving. Like, and just like, but then you see that like that that's the main picture right there, which is her and her like aeronautical getup. But then you scroll down and like like she's all smiling in that one, and she's just just she just looked like a really like you could feel that she was like a very warm um strong individual from the photos yeah oh yeah she looks like someone who is like really warm and strong but exactly and she didn't from what i can tell (laughs) and she she really did live her own life uh in her own way um so she became this huge daredevil daredevil stunt pilot she broke several bones along the way um she was even offered a movie role at one point, but she turned it down because the opening scene would have had her dressed in rags in a state of poverty. And she's like, this is so undignified. I'm not doing this. Her dream. Yeah. Uh, her dream in life was to open an aviation school specifically for African-Americans. But sadly, she did not live to see this dream fulfilled. On April 30th, 1926, in Jacksonville, Florida, she, uh, Florida, oh, the wine, here we go. It's happening. <laughs> uh, just a global look. Uh, she purchased a plane that had uh, kind of a bad reputation as a shoddy piece of equipment I couldn't tell if it was like an experimental aircraft um, or just like uh, like planes were rare so like mm-hmm. they were kind of each one was unique I'm not sure how mass produced they were uh, but this one kind of had some problems on the flight over. It had like a lot of stops. She was with um, a co-pilot of hers, William. I think I what was his name? I had it. I was doing so well up until this point too. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Uh, Will, <laughs> yeah, the magic of William editing. D. Wills, which is also a great name. Um, <laughs> uh yeah there was a lot of like starts and stops um her family was like you cannot get in this plane she's like i have to get in this plane i've got a show to do you know i i don't say no to anything i need to be brave i got this so despite the warnings she was also practicing with a pair for a parachute jump stunt the net that was going to be the next day where i think she was just gonna like uh he was gonna they're they're both gonna get in the plane together and she was gonna jump out um and parachute down is but like in a cool way i don't know um so she didn't have her seatbelt on so about 10 minutes into the flight the plane went into a dive and then a spin uh coleman was thrown from the plane at 2,000 feet and she died instantly when she hit the ground um her co-pilot died when he crashed into the ground uh and it was later discovered that what happened was that there was a wrench that was being used um, to service the engine and it had jammed the controls and when she died Coleman was 34 years old um, so uh, despite her un- wow I'm getting really emotional it's been a long day uh, it's the wine the caffeine just everything it's just, 
and this is like it's like yeah. traumatic because she was so good at her job and it teaches you like no matter what like it happens even if you're prepared yeah, for everything and, else exactly and we don't really have a broad spectrum view of her life and like really too much looks into her character but by all accounts she was a really just genuine lovely individual uh which i i guess Amelia Earhart wasn't uh i can't really speak to that but i've heard accounts that she was not nice of a person she was kind of like but then again i think any strong-willed woman would probably get labeled that so who am i to say but no uh queen best was was a pretty awesome lady it sounds so despite her untimely death she left behind a fantastic legacy and i'll close this with a quote um from her brief but wondrous life um she said the air is the only place free from prejudices I know we had no aviators, neither men nor women, and I knew that the race needed to be represented along the most important line. So I thought in my, and by race, of course, she means black people of color. Um, So I thought in my duty to risk my life to learn aviation. So in short, she's pretty much the coolest and Janelle Monae needs to play her in the inevitable biopic. And that's, uh, that's Bessie, Queen Bess. I feel like, I feel like we were robbed that we weren't taught about her in school. And I mean, I understand the politics of making like history books for schools, but I mean, think of how many women of color could look up to her and just be so inspired that she said, you to the establishment and oh, you care. Uh, It's fine. I, I, I'll probably bleep it out or cut it out. Um, Although I've definitely let okay. some F-bombs sleep through, so it's fine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's why ours yeah, is Yeah, I should probably do that. I'd be good about that, but I, I don't know. At this time, I, I might as well. <laughs> anyway, as you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah, she basically said, screw you to the establishment and was like, I'm going to do what my dream is, and I'm going to do it however I can. And sadly, she died doing it, but... yeah. Absolutely. And it's interesting when you connect a lot of the the tissue together, there's kind of a legacy of um, African-American women in aeronautics. Like when you look at uh, Katherine Johnson, you know, of Hidden Figures fame, like there's a a lot there that uh, should get taught in the, you know, ensuing decades. If they're still in America at all, who knows? It's a toss up at this point. But Courtney, (laughs) can you enlighten me as to your... um, superhero lady adventure yes so i went a little early um i went to my favorite period which is the late 18th century um (laughs) uh, i chose lady hester stanhope um and she man what a life lay it on me uh uh so she her father was charles stanhope or third earl Stanhope, which is the dumbest Earl name ever. Um, I'm sorry. I've read a lot of them, and that is one of the dumbest. What is the barometer for that? The best one is Sandwich. Wouldn't you want to be Lord or Lady Sandwich? Yes. I mean, that's... You've created a legendary food product for arguably one of the best culinary inventions of the modern era. Yeah. Right. And you can just claim it because it's your. Did they title. actually? No, we're gonna. No, we have to though. Did they actually? <laughs> we have to. I don't care. I'm doing this. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. 
did this did i don't want to hijack your thing i'm sorry no it's fine i'm at the beginning okay. i have way too much too so lord of this is i mean this is just kind of like a man talking over a woman in practice this is like the part where we like let the audience <laughs> really experience um he seriously did. he did <laughs> the uh According to Quayora, which I never say that right, I like your um, the Earl of San, uh, Lord or uh, John Montague, fourth Earl of Sandwich, um, and he made it so he could play cards more. Getting flashbacks, I'm pretty sure there was an episode of Arthur on PBS that went into this, or maybe it was Busy Town. Something from my childhood covered this. It's coming back to me now. It's it's like hitting me hard. I'm seeing cartoon cats playing cards with meat or something. Yes, this is a thing. Anyways, back to your person. Oh I'm just really intrigued now by cartoon cats. I'm, yeah, with meat. well, because of the sandwich. They that was how you. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got to make some sandwiches while you drink and gamble away your fortunes. So his first wife and Hester's mother was uh, Lady Hester Pitt of the Pitt family political fame. Um, and they were actually a love match, which I have to give them props in the, ar- the aristocratic time period. You you weren't getting love matches. You were getting creepy matches. Um, so she is one, Hester's one of three children, and the last uh, daughter... Uh, killed her mother. Wait, what? Uh, what? In childbirth. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, mom okay. died in childbirth. <laughs> I the was like, I like just like fully grown female, can't, like committing matricide is what I got from that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, being a woman in this period of time was pretty deadly. You popped out kids, and if you survived it all, good for you. If not, your husband's remarrying to pop, have a new wife to pop out more kids. Just a fact. Yeah, Ashley doesn't like my uh, my analogy of a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> Apparently it's too graphic. <laughs> well, now all I'm just seeing is like but baby, placenta and all coming out of like at a concert just being launched from a t-shirt cannon into like a screaming audience. It's really gross inside my head right now. I'm going to keep drinking and that will make it go away while I listen to your your lovely tale. <laughs> so while the Earl was upset about his wife's death, he still remarried six months later. And his next wife gave three sons, an heiress bear and a little plus one, Um and then just abandoned the children to the governess at their family home, home of, oh, get ready for this, Cheeving? Cheeving? I'm going to go with Cheeving. Um, and their stepmother went back, to, and the dad went back to London. Because, you know, parenting. The Earl was a scientist and oh, inventor, wow. but he's kind of nuts. Classic example, he tried to sell the family estate to fund attempts at... Um, a steam-powered ship, and basically kept his son, eldest son prisoner with him, um, trying to get him to send o- sign over his rights to the house and refusing to send him to university, which was kind of unheard is, of for the eldest son in this period. Is steampunk? I would love for it to be steampunk, but I was too terrified of the father when I heard he was, like, holding his son mm. captive to look okay. up anymore. 
because I was like, um, this has a lot of, uh, you know, Jane Eyre with the mad wife in the attic kind of feels. And I wasn't about Very that. gothic. I'm into it. Yeah. Um, so, however, Hester was the only child of the six who didn't uh, take any of her dad's crap. And because she was smart, her dad let they'd actually have conversations and at the age of 20 she basically had had enough her father said you can't go to a party and uh she pulled the classic teenage stunt and said i'm going to visit a friend and then she drove herself to the party without a chaperone which is i know how dare she further angering her father she rescued her eldest brother from his clutches and that i'm so into her Right? And she's 20. She lives a long life, so, like, it gets crazier from here. She basically hatched a plan with her uncle to get her brother onto onto the continent and be like, go get your education. You've been locked up here enough. Why did he do that? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, but, like, why did he do that? (laughs) Because he wanted... He wanted to sell the estate, and he wanted all the money for his inventions and his steam-powered ship... Which is, I mean, a couple, probably a couple decades off at this point, but you're going to have to believe this. He's one of, uh, I would call, the assholes of history, our unofficial, the Cult of Domesticity's unofficial men's gu- uh, historical yes. figures guide. <laughs> There's a lot of them, and I seem to mostly pick them to discuss. Drag I don't them. know why. Uh, so, Lady Hester... This is, we're going to describe her appearance, and is, the descriptions of her aren't nice. Um, she's described as not beautiful, tall, with striking blue eyes, and the pit nose. So she has kind of like a small pointy-ish mm-hmm. nose. Um, and basically, she was too independent and outspoken, outspoken for most men to have as a wife. And Lord Byron famously famously referred to her as that dangerous thing the female okay well lord byron was an so she pissed off whatever we've 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 brought him up on on this podcast before not a fan i'm not a fan um but most of her friends were male uh she preferred talking about you know politics philosophy and intellectual topics rather than shopping or gossip i totally get that uh and she actually got to go on her own little grand tour in 1802, um, but returned because war broke out in Europe, as it always does. So when her grandmother dies, Heather, Hester, I'm going to call her Heather at so many points in this, Hester was homeless again, but who comes to her aid? But William Pitt, the younger. Oh. And if you... So... William Pitt's kind of an interesting figure in its in himself um, because he is the youngest prime minister in British history in 1783 when he was 24 and he held the office uh, for almost 20 years, which is 1801. And Hester basically became his hostess since he was unmarried. So he needed a, a female to host parties and she's smart and witty What's better to entertain politicians than a witty woman? Um, however, when Pitt dies in 1806, 
He made sure that Hester and her sisters were taken care of. She got a pension of 1,200 pounds a year, which is pretty good for a woman. Um, Not of her station. That's the key thing. Remember, she's high-class aristocracy with a great pedigree. She's expected to live a certain lifestyle. And she's homeless. Continual theme of her life, she's homeless. Um, So she gets a house with her brothers, two younger brothers, and basically... Uh, she can't afford a coach or horses and she can't walk around town then without her maid because as this great, uh, blog I found that really went in depth into her life said, it was only something prostitutes did. So now, you know, walk around town with your maid ladies. You don't want to be mistaken, I guess. Um, or don't screw the, screw the patriarchy. Um, yeah. And she basically said a poor gentlewoman is the worst thing in the world. And on top of this, once her uncle died, most of her friends abandoned her because they're like, well, we can't use you for your uncle anymore. So <laughs> bye. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's got to suck. Your uncle's dead. You're homeless. And half your friends leave you. However, there was one faithful friend, Sir John Moore, who was a general in the army and he's Scottish. They were ex- extremely close friends. And the, re- uh, the reason why I say he's Scottish is because Scotland at this point is still... They're kind of becoming less of the other in relation to England, but they're still not English, which is... Important. Are they their own country still? No. Um, after the... Uh, after Bunny Prince Charles' revolution in 1745, basically, there is no hope of Scotland being a separate country anymore. They've informally been together since uh, 1601 with James I, because he was king of England and Scotland separately, and they kind of united it. So at this point, it's basically, they're the second, second, third colony, you could say, of England. The first being Wales. And the second being Ireland. Yes, it's the third at this point. So, um, the thought is, this is speculation. Um, Moore would have probably had a relationship with Hester if he hadn't been killed in Spain with her younger brother, Charles. No. I know. And this is actually the second man that, like, she's lost. The first so-called boyfriend, you could say was kind of just a dick and I didn't want to talk about him because he was basically using her. Um, So she goes off to Wales to mourn. Basically her doctor's like, you seem depressed. You should go abroad, which is the British cure for everything. It seems just go abroad. Uh, And so she gathers up an entourage, which is her physician and who will later be her biographer and how we know so much about her. Charles Lewis Meriden, her maid and fry, and Michael Bruce, who becomes her lover. She leaves England in 1810, which is, if you know your history, getting close to the Napoleonic Wars. Um, knowing, And she didn't know she's never returning to England after this. Interesting. Cool foreshadowing. Yeah, I know. She meets, uh, she picks up Michael Bruce uh, in Gibraltar, actually, which is owned by the British still. Um, and he's 12 years younger than her, so get it, girl. Get it, girl. 
Um, he he was highly educated, charming, and his father made his fortune in India. And basically, they're companions and they have great conversation. But she knows this is on borrowed time because she's like, "Yeah, this is pr- he's probably gonna leave me at some mm-hmm. point." I'm like, "Hey, be pragmatic, have fun, but know that like." He's probably going to go back to England and find a wife. Um, so they go to Turkey, Greece, and they ha- hang out in Constantinople. And they were like, let's go to Cairo. Um, and as she's in Egypt, uh, specifically Alexandria, she decides, I'm going to learn Turkish and Arabic. Which, at this given point in time, some British upper class, some middle class are learning it because... They're having more relations, but very few women are learning um, Turkish and Arabic. So I'm impressed. They end up shipwrecked off the coast of Rhodes, and Ooh. all of their stuff is lost. Oh. Yeah. I mean, shipwrecks are pretty common. I'm surprised there weren't pirates because uh, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of pirates at this time. And they're given Turkish clothes to wear. Um, Hester, the, like, the crazy woman she is, goes, I'm not wearing a veil, grabs the male garb, Turkish garb of a robe, turban, and slippers, and she's like, I like this, it's comfy, let's go with it. And I'm like, yes. I would too. Awesome. I know. The most important thing is she didn't wear a veil, which, if you know, Islamic society at this time was pretty much shocking and unheard of. Um, most European women, when they went to the Middle East or if they went to any Islamic countries, would wear a veil. Just are to... we talking more than the hijab? Um, no, no, just a, like this, the plain veil. Okay. So, um, it was. It's mainly at their view of respecting women is saying like, we we don't want you to be distracted. The we don't want you to be harassed by men, and so you should protect yourself. Huh. That's how it works, does it? That's, that is how historically it was uh, described, so that way you don't have to worry about it. And, I mean, the Islamic culture does have, historically, we're going to go historically, a tendency to honor women more. I don't know when the change happened, but... In this period, women are kind of regarded as better than men in some senses. Like, they're morally better than men. Which, Yeah. So, uh, Lady Hester is received royally throughout the Middle East. Um, so, she enjoys it. She's basically received in state for um, the Pasha Mehmet Ali in Cairo. And a pasha is based, if you don't know this period of time, it's basically a high government official. Um, and she travels, basically in two years, she hits Gibraltar, Malta, the Ionian Islands, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, Athens, Constantinople, Rhodes, Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria. All the cool places. All the cool places. And think about it, she's traveling this in two years. There's no planes, there's no power boats, everything is wind-powered or camel-powered. Dang. Get it. 
So one of my favorite stories is when she reaches Damascus, she refuses to wear a veil or change into women's clothing to enter the city. And they're like, yeah, they don't really like Christians here. And she's like, I don't care. I'm going to rock it. And she rides in midday unveiled in men's clothing. But the people were like, yes, queen. Really? Yeah. She got away with it. She got away with it. Yeah. And so um, she enjoyed her time in Damascus. Then in 1813, she's like, I'm going to go to Palmyra, which was the site of Queen Zenobia's ancient kingdom. Okay, Um, into it. Yes. And problem comes up. They're like, hey, there's some dangerous Bedouins that live around that area you have to go through in the desert. So she's like, fine, I'll dress as a Bedouin and uh, bring my own caravan of 22 camels to carry all her baggage. So, girl's got some luggage. (laughs) And mind you, that's new luggage. She somehow, between roads in this point, got 22 camels worth of luggage. Uh, Well, how I'm just confused, if you don't mind. Um, Mm -hmm. I just want to, like, locate myself, the audience, everyone. She got shipwrecked and really didn't ever really really reach equilibrium in the sense of going back to England Mm -hmm. post-shipwreck. She just kind of picked up from there and just kept going across uh, uh, Eurasia pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. How did she amass – did she – how did she amass um, wealth or like funds? So she still has her stipend from her – from William Pitt the Younger and – She's, she can get credit because she's aristocratic and British, and oh. so the bank there's banks bank the growth of banks pop up uh, in the early part of the 18th century, and so she can get credit in a lot of places where you if you were a common person and you lost all your stuff you would be like up a creek without a paddle. But she's like, it's okay. I'll go to the British consulate. They'll like spot me. So of course, she, as they do. As they do. And she knows a lot of them because, think about it, she probably entertained some member of their family at a given point. It helps to be social. Yes. And who is she traveling with again? Is she still traveling with that um, gentleman or is he kind of out of the picture? Because I'm, I'm trying to locate myself here. She's still with the doctor, her maid, and the lover. So she's got an entourage. Yeah. I'm into this. All right, so she's got all this luggage. She's about to go. She's looking for this ancient kingdom of Queen Zenobia. It's got dangerous um, Bedouins in this territory. She's got all these camels and her, like, her, her like, Jimmy Choo's. Just, like, yeah. in a bunch of, like, luggage. Okay, cool. Yeah, just imagine, was it the second Sex in the City movie where they're all, like, traveling on camels? <laughs> just, just picture, like, the ridiculousness of that. Because, I mean, if you picture a posh British woman at the beginning of the 19th century traveling through the middle east it's not that far off (laughs) okay cool all right take it away so basically all the local bedouins were like what this woman's ridiculous and cool and they came to see her so by the time she arrived in palmyra she's basically there's a giant party and they called her queen hester so we had two queens of this so she basically just skirted by by just being awesome. Like yeah. That's how she got out of danger by just showing up and being like the baddest 
dame in the room, essentially. Yeah. I think it's also the fact that she knew the culture, she knew the language, so it's like she's not going through a temp, like an interpreter, and she just is like, I'm here, this is me, deal with it. So, and now we have reached the peak of her kind of awesomeness, um, because her lover, Michael Bruce, goes back to England because his father is ill, and then he was supposed to send her money and never does. And he was supposed to write her and barely does. It, and basically, her options get even smaller now because everyone in England now knows about her relationship with Michael. So okay. she can't go back. So she's like, I'm living here now. <laughs> um, so she's basically left to live on the, her, gov- her pension from the government, um, which in the period she was living should have lasted her a while, but she's still living in her aristocratic lifestyle. So now her story just becomes one of debt. Um, Mm. Basically one of the problems is she would accept any British traveler that came to be like, Hey, what's up? I mean, Sam. Right. Um, She also gave sanctuary to hundreds of refugees from the, Drea's inner clan warfare, which pissed off uh, Mamet Ali um, when he was struggling with the Ottoman Sultan. So she's just rocking it with that. Um, yeah, basically, she is running out of money and running up debts quick. She had a bout of uh, illness that almost killed her in 1815. And then, according to Charles uh, Marin, she decided... Um, she had been reading this Italian medieval manuscript copied from a monastery somewhere in Syria. I love the specifics of this. I found this old thing from another thing. Um, and basically, there the document said there was a great treasure hidden under the ruins of a mosque in the port city of, and I'm apologizing for the pronunciation, Ashikalon, uh, which had been ruined for 600 years. So she's going on a treasure hunt now. Broke and going on a treasure run, I should say. Okay, this is relevant to my interests. Yeah. What I kind just, of treasure? Um, it, they never sad. No. I know. Is it gold? Is it is it jewels? Is it a genie and a lamp? Like, what? I, I would assume. Um, <laughs> What is it? I think it's just, like, it's probably the mosque's gold. It's probably just uh, the remnants of this everything that was in this mosque or in this city mm-hmm. um, that might have some value. So fun fact, this is the first archaeological excavation in Palestine. So, no way. Yeah. So this crazy rich British lady on a whim decides to do this. And she actually gets permission from the Sultan to go dig up this at this mosque. And she goes, Which is hey. more than most white people do in that time place so that's noble i guess yeah she asked for permission not for forgiveness and uh she goes hey british government you want to give me money to do this and they said (laughs) no mind you they know how in debt she is so i think that might be why uh they only found a large statue which 
Hester destroyed because she didn't want to be accused of smuggling antiquities, which apparently they smashed it and threw it into the sea. Are you kidding me? Nope. Are you (laughs) kidding? I mean, like that. Okay, well, first of all. I, I feel her because I'm that paranoid where I'm just like, oh, gosh, we got to just get rid of the statue. We just I can't I can't I can't like that's that's definitely like my like runaway like neuroses train. So on that, I can sympathize. But really, <laughs> can you believe? I know. <sighs> and it's so well documented that people are like, yeah, she was just um, she just didn't want to be one of those people who was accused of just taking it back to England. So she was like, if if. That way you, I can prove to you. And then I think she ran out of money before they could dig up more. But my favorite, uh, someone wrote, this fact earned her the enmity from generations of archaeologists appalled that she would destroy an artifact. Like, it's this weird way of trying to be, like, it's this, like, perverse allyship where it's like, well, I'm not going to steal this other culture and take it back to England <laughs> as other people. So I'm just going to destroy it instead. Right. Like, it's so dumb. I'm okay. I'm not a fan of hers anymore. I'm sorry. You're good. It, yeah, she, she goes downhill real quick. Um, so basically, she's now more in debt because she funded the dig herself, and she didn't have that much money. And she's now she just kind of settles um in Sidon, a town near the Mediterranean coast in Lebanon. And she first lives in a disused monastery. <laughs> then it lives in another monastery. Uh, during this time, her maid dies from illness. So mm. she's down just her doctor. And mind you, it's they've been in the Middle East for a while. And Meriden, her doctor, decides he's going to go back to England. I think they've been gone for almost 20 years. Um and Hester uh, moves to a remote abandoned monastery at June. Um, Is it just like a just like a surplus of abandoned monasteries and abbeys in this region? I have no idea. I'm assuming it's because of all the different, uh, you know, religious upheavals in this area that like sometimes they're just not fortressed enough. So if you live there you're going to get attacked by whatever religion's coming through fighting for the land again. <laughs> oh, I hate when I get attacked by religion. I, I hate when religion just attacks things. Um, so she's really in debt, and basically her pension's just going to pay off her creditors in Syria. And at the end of her life, she becomes a recluse, and her servants begin stealing her possessions because she's senile, and she dies... Uh, June 23rd in 1839. And I'm assuming of old age because no one discusses it. But the reason why we know her, um, because almost a decade after her death, Dr. Meriden published three volumes of, and get ready for an 18th century title, Memoirs of the Lady Hester Stanhope as related by herself in conversations with her physicians, and then followed by three more volumes of Travels of Lady Hester Stanhope forming the completion of her memoirs narrated by her physician. <laughs> Back in the habit. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, dang. Yeah, so 
That's that's not even the longest title I've ever seen from this period. Or a brief encounter of British archaeologists in Patagonia or, or tea time with the great Dr. Livingston. Okay, I just done. They just silent. no, they just have to tell you everything that's in the book before you open the book. And so you're like, well, this is a paragraph. It's like when you accidentally, like, you copy, like, the, the, the text you're going to put into the email, but you put it in the subject line oh of your God. email. Like, yes. that's AKA or being an old person on the internet <laughs> trying to send an email. That's that thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, yes. Yeah, so that is Lady Hester Stanhope. Crazy woman. Amazing life. End of life is very tragic. And terrible choices, which I'm a huge fan of and an emulator of. So this is this is great. That was so cool. I know, right? I just love that she's like, well, I'm shipwrecked. Might as well just make the best of it and just decides to traipse across, like, the Middle East and just leads and, like, makes friends with everyone. Like, I, ugh, I, just, I can't. I can't believe she got away without wearing a veil. I'm yeah, like. And wasn't attacked? Yeah. Oh, but yeah. then again, yeah, yeah, uh, that's, that's incredible. Okay. I mean, she couldn't like throw gold coins at them to make them not attack her because she was broke, but. <laughs> I mean, that, that would ward me off. I know, um, right? Okay. Are you ready for our final person? I'm very excited. Okay. Uh, do you know a <coughs> awesome lady named Nellie Bly? I think I've heard of her. Okay. Not sure. So Nellie Bly was actually born Elizabeth Jane Cochran in Cochran's Mills, which is now part of Borough Township, Pennsylvania. Why was her last name the same place as her town or birthplace, you might ask? That's because her father, Michael Cochran, bought a mill, had a mill, and basically became the merchant, postmaster general, and like the associate justice or judge of the town. So her dad was literally the town. So I guess they're just like, okay, we're going to name it after you. You are the town. Um, much like everyone else in this story, Nellie was one of 10 children, uh, this episode rather. Um, she was a big fan of the color pink as a child and she wore it whenever she could, which earned her the nickname Pinky. Just a little fun fact there. Oh, she attended boarding school for one term, but after her father's death in 1870, uh, or 1871, she was also much like, um, Bessie uh, Coleman, she had to drop out because of a lack of funds. So her family moved her and her, uh, everyone else and her, like, millions of siblings to Pittsburgh. And uh, then she became an avid reader and writer. And she was living there in Pittsburgh, doing her thing. And one day she opened the newspaper and discovered a article called What Girls Are Good For in the Pittsburgh Dispatch. How misogynistic do you think it was, Courtney? All the misogyny. So much. The article reported that girls were principally for birthing children oh. and keeping house prompted. So t-shirt cannons. Yeah, t-shirt cannons. To, but with babies. Um, <laughs> so Nellie was like, this is so not okay. So she wrote a letter to the editor uh, or a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. Uh, instead of, <laughs> I love her. I love in- it. 
She's so great. Get ready. So instead of getting laughed at, the editor of the paper, George Madden, admired her spunk, wit, and intelligence, and in a kind of Cinderella-esque move, ran an advertisement asking for the author to identify herself and come forward. Nellie gladly stepped up, and she was immediately offered a job as a writer, and she kept the lonely orphan girl nom de plume for a while. And girl came in hot. Her first article for the dispatch was cut was entitled The Girl Puzzle, um, which sounds like a type of puzzle for eight, years 18 and up, but I guess was really about divorce um, and how it affected women, which was not talked about at the time. I, like, I think it even was... divor- divorce was kind of like a scandalous subject in and of itself. Yes. Um, I was going to say it sounds like a horror movie. The Girl head. Puzzle. Yeah. 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 I think that's definitely, there's definitely a genderfied statement. And I thought it was just something like lascivious and you thought it was a horror movie. <laughs> like a puzzle made of girls. Yeah. Like, like a Hannibal thing. Oh, I don't want to Yeah, know. I mean, I did l- just listen to My Favorite Murder today and it was very, very aggressive. So that might be why. Wait, was it the episode, was it the most recent one? Yes. Oh my gosh, with the woman who was pre- So much. I was listening be- to it in a cemetery, a by the okay. way. Okay, I've got questions about that, but first, <laughs> let's become like a My Favorite Murder like fan podcast about a podcast yes. for a second. Uh, yeah, that was so messed up. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of this little podcast called My Favorite Murder, but you should go listen to it. Also, girl, what were you doing in a cemetery? Um, I was walking my dog and... Uh... Okay, safe answer. <laughs> so, because I live in the country, there's no real good places and it's kind of muddy and it, she's a ger- schnitzel's a German shepherd who just attracts mud. So I was like, okay, well, we'll go walk around in the town near mine. And the cemetery has nice paths. And um, and the ghosts are friendly. The ghosts are nice. Well, actually, some of my mom's father's family is buried there. Also, I remember someone telling me, which if I figure out where the grave is, I'll have to take a picture and send it to you. But um, there's like this mystery girl who died and she has a grave there. And I could, I was like, oh. Maybe I'll just find it and I can do a podcast episode on it. Um, I didn't. Also, the historian in me just loves looking at like old grave markers and the differences in them. So, yeah. You know, they say it's actually good for your um, mental health to visit cemeteries and contemplate mortality. I do it too much, so probably not for me, but. Yeah. yeah, just a fun fact. Anyways, so <laughs> she, so Nellie, back to Nellie, uh, she argued for a reform of divorce laws. Oh, and at this point, she was still Elizabeth. So they were like, you need a real name because you're too good. <laughs> so she took the name Nellie Bly, which is adopted from the title character in the popular song Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster, who didn't he write the... Not the national anthem. He did something. I'm just now. Do you want to Google through that? That's what. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Ooh, PBS has something. I trust them. Oh, okay. I know where I heard it from. So um, I don't know if you. Okay, well, Camp Town Races. That's an O Susanna. Mm -hmm. He was known as the father of American music. So he was basically like the. there's no good modern comparisons. I was going to go with like like the Frank Sinatra of his time, but yeah. he was just, he did a lot of songs. He did um, 
I'm a huge gamer nerd, and I've been listening to the soundtrack to Civilization VI, which okay. takes um, it takes traditional melodies from what. So it's all these different. You can play as all these different countries and civilizations that have existed throughout history, and yeah. you can and like the the theme songs. They go through four different like phases, and each one it starts out as like a traditional folk melody using an orchestra and the traditional. Uh, instruments from that country and the one for america is by stephen foster and it's oh, okay. uh uh hard times don't come no more or i know something like that yeah. um but yeah anyways that's a detour <laughs> good game seriously it's great studying music just check i've never even played it just check out this soundtrack for civilization six that's my oh, little yeah. i'm a fan of those <laughs> Um, so she took that song, Nelly, uh, Bly. So this, I guess, would have been calling your, like, yourself, like, Billie Jean. <laughs> um, like, you know, from, like, Luke Jackson yeah. at the time. So her articles for the Pittsburgh Dispatch focused on the lives of working women. And she is considered one of the first investigative journalists. Uh, her first investigations were into the, uh, f- women factory workers and their living conditions, which, spoilers, not that great. Oh, um, no. Yeah, a triangle shirtwaist factory. Oh, I was thinking of every ghost adventure when they go to factories and they're like, all these horrible (laughs) things happen. And you're just like, well, glad I live in this time now. Am I talking to the ghost of the woman who sewed her hand to the sewing machine and then (sighs) caught on fire because everything is asbestos? No? No. Okay. Um, (laughs) The wine. I'm so tired. Um... (laughs) So local factory workers got pissed at her for basically airing their dirty laundry and they started complaining to the editors. So they assigned her to what was called the women's pages, which focused on fashion, society and gardening. Needless to say, she was not pleased. So she said goodbye to all that and ran away to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent. As you do. As you do. Uh, I think, but do not have the textual evidence to support this, but I think she got away with doing this because nobody really wanted the job of going to a foreign country to report on what was essentially not a really chill political climate, because this was after the Mexican Civil War. Oh, yeah. Oh. When she did this, she was twenty, only 21. Yeah. She's do you know queen. what? Do, yes, she is. It gets better. Do you want to know what I was doing at 21, Courtney? School. <laughs> yes, but I my achievement at that point in life was I was a shot boy in the scummiest bar in New Haven, Connecticut and working at Abercrombie and Fitch at the mall. <laughs> so that's my life. Um, what was I doing at 21? Um, I think I had knee surgery. I think I had knee surgery. I think that's what my accomplishment was. I think Nellie Bly might be beating us in life at this point. So she spent six months covering the lives and customs of Mexico, probably eating a ton of good food. Um, And her articles were eventually collected in a book called Six Months in Mexico. (laughs) Of course, Nellie liked to stir the pot for the common good and began to criticize the local government for suppressing and jailing journalists. This earned her the enmity of one dictator, Porfirio Diaz, who threatened her with arrest. She wasn't an idiot and was like, later days, I'm getting out of here. So she peaced. And then as, when she got, as soon as she got back home, wrote a bunch of, sca- like sat down at her typewriter, I think they had typewriters, and wrote a bunch of scathing articles calling Diaz a tyrant who suppressed the Mexican people, was bad for Mexico, and controlled the press. And this is the same petty thing I would do in her oh, position. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to jail. I'm too pretty. But I'm going to make you look terrible when I'm at a very safe distance. Oh, you can just imagine her typewriter is, like, steaming, and she's oh. just like, ah. 
angry typewriting sounds like subtweeting mexican dictators oh, um so this is where side eye. <laughs> yeah so this is where it gets juicy it's 1887 the pittsburgh dispatch is like you're a loose cannon bligh so it does exactly the thing i did at her age she does exactly the thing i did at her age and just gave up and moved to new york city with nothing but a prayer <laughs> Um, and she found out what literally everybody else does when they do this. And she was poor in four months time. So because she's just got chutzpah, she goes into the office of Joseph Pulitzer, you know, the guy with the prize. And was like, <laughs> OK, look, Joseph Pulitzer, I know you're famous, but I'm amazing and everyone knows it. But men suck. So hire me and I will write the most fire article of all time. And Pulitzer was like, OK, do it. So. I mean, I'm not now- surprised. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Sh- yeah, he was like one of the founders, I believe, of yellow journalism. So, oh, and it gets pretty uh, salacious. <laughs> um, it's the second time I've used that word this episode. Uh, Nelly was very much a suffragette and a fighter of the common people. She identified there was a huge problem in how the mentally ill were treated in New York, especially women. And she had gotten wind of the uh, treatment of women in the very much does what it says on the tin, women's lunatic asylum (laughs) on Blackwell's Island, which today is known as Roosevelt Island. And I do need to explain this a little bit because Roosevelt Island is so weird, which is saying something for New York. (laughs) So um, I don't I don't know if you know, I'm just going to contextualize it for the audience. Basically, you've got Manhattan. You've got the East River, and then you've got, like, Queens, and then below that is Brooklyn. Between Queens and the East River is Roosevelt Island, which is a – think of this long road, like, basically a road, like a island that's long enough to fit just one road down the whole thing, and tons of apartment buildings. To get to it, you can take a subway, but it's, like, the deepest subway in New York, I think. Someone can quote like correct me on that if they want to take the time to be that petty by being, <laughs> by all means be my guest. Um, but the the famous way you get to this island is you take the Roosevelt Island tram, which is like a sky like tram that takes you over the water. It's kind of okay. scary to be honest, um, but I'm also afraid of heights. And it's it's just it's an island that just it's weird. It's you it's just small but like dense. And uh, on, and it's actually kind of notorious because it was for a while it was where they just put all the sick and the mentally ill throughout this city's long history. As you do, put them on an As island. You, yeah, it was like a sanitarium. So the lunatic asylum was there, and the asylum was known for its main entrance hall called the Octagon. And this building, so you walked in and it was like this spiral staircase. And I'm actually going to send you a picture right now, okay. so you kind of like you can kind of get a sense of what i'm talking about here i'm just thinking of uh jeremy betham's uh i think it's pentacticon with prisons where there's like as the jailers are in the center and then the all these cells are on the outside so it's like you're constantly being watched and the theory is that you're because you're constantly being watched you will behave better because society everyone's watching each other i mean this looks beautiful but Oh, scroll down. Oh, that def. Yeah, now that's definitely haunted. Definitely haunted. <gasps> oh, you best believe. Um, and this building and this story I'm about to tell. Um, 
which is going to be pretty concise. We don't have much time left. Um, <laughs> it was in- inspired the second season of American Horror Story, appropriately titled Asylum. Oh, I can tell why. Yeah. Like, it looks like that the entrance hall in that series in that season is inspired by it. it's like the spiral staircase that goes all the way up it's really creepy looking and dark um and, and today that that building has been converted into apartment buildings would you live in there probably because i'm crazy but like super haunted <laughs> you there's not like, enough sage in the world you just have to constantly be burning sage you would trip over ghosts <laughs> um so Nellie needed Nellie knew she's gonna need to get in there and go undercover to figure out what's going on. So after a night spent practicing expressions in front of a mirror, just like practicing looking crazy, which that's funny that people need to practice that when it comes so naturally to me. Wait, she can I into... can I guess what she checked in with? I think I know. What? Hysteria. You're close. There's also a a uh, famous list that goes around Facebook from time to time of reasons people were like mentally, uh, like considered mentally ill, and it's stuff like the war, uh, <laughs> tired, um, plays, a domino, just bizarre stuff. Oh, you want to um, dump someone off? Here you go. Here's the place. Pretty much. So Nellie checks into a boarding house. She refuses to go to bed. She tells the boarders that she's afraid of them and that they look crazy. They think that she's the crazy one. And next morning, they call the cops. She's taken to a courtroom and she claims to have amnesia. The judge is like, I think she's been drugged. Which, you know, I think that makes sense. So several doctors examine her and they all declare her insane. Positively demented, said one. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. That's what the people talked like back in old New York. It's a fact. Um, Bellevue, the head of Bellevue Hospital pronounced her undoubtedly insane. And she this in itself attracted so much attraction that in the, the New York Sun and the New York Times, they talked of the pretty crazy girl with the wild haunted look in her eyes and her desperate cry. I can't remember. I can't remember, which is also my motto all the time. So, um, so she's committed to the asylum and. Not that great of a place, Courtney. Uh, the food consisted, what? and this is full disclosure at this point, this is a lot of it's from Wikipedia, but they actually do have a good article on this. Um, the food consisted of gruel broth, spoiled beef, bread that was like dry and crusty, the water was dirty, uh, patients were held back with ropes. Um, the patients were made to sit for much of each day on hard benches. There was no insulation. It was cold. There was poop and feces. Same thing. All over the eating places. There were rats everywhere. It was like, it was a horror movie. It was like, like a sign, like American Horror Story Asylum. Uh, they kept pouring water over their heads because that was a form of treatment. At, back in the day, how you treated the mentally ill was like, what is the worst thing I could do to a person? What is the exact opposite of the thing that I should be doing this person? And you do that. Yep. Uh, the nurses were abusive. They would tell the patients to shut up. They'd beat them. Um, and what's so what's so scary about this is Nellie, of course, would speak to her fellow patients. And she was like, "These most of these people are sane. They're not sick at all. This is the worst. This is hell, essentially. So she, she said, quote, 
um, what expecting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability, to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches, do not allow her to talk or move during these hours, give her no reading, and let her know nothing of the world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. She's, she said she would experience the worst treatment of her life. And what got scarier is, and this I need to research more, granted, but I think at one point she was basically like, okay, here's the deal. I'm an investigative journalist. I This is just a rouse. I need to get out of here. And they were, of course, like, oh, good one. You're crazy and you're here forever. Fortunately, she was smart. And she was basically, she told the uh, the world, the article, the company, she, the press she worked for, look, at t- after 10 days, that's all I'm going to need. After 10 days, if you don't hear back from me, you need to come and release me. So they did. And the doctors were like, are you serious? Like, I mean, I guess you can take her out of here, but she's clearly insane. And then she was like, haha, not so fast. <laughs> I'm The jig is up. So she published her report it complete it got attracted like the judges of new york who were mortified uh the doctors were scandalized they were like well we we thought that she was insane and everyone was like well then you're clearly bad doctors this is no way to treat the mentally ill it completely rewrote um that whole institution which is still broken to this day but for a while it got a little bit better because of her efforts and she was uh hailed as a hero Probably not popular with doctors, but a hero to everyone else. And this is, we're coming up to the home stretch. This is not her biggest claim to fame. In 1888, she was bored. She's like, where are you going from there? And Bly suggested to her editor, she's like, I'm, I'm, I love reading. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Jules Verne. I love his fiction. I love science fiction. There's this book called Around the World in 80 Days. I can do it in 70. So they're like... <laughs> what okay crazy woman well no one's gonna stop you because you basically have carte blanche to do whatever you want at this point (laughs) so she's like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna go around this world um i'm gonna pack just a coat a dress some underwear some toiletries um like dental floss that's all i'm gonna do i'm gonna carry my money in a purse and i'm gonna travel by myself as a woman across the world you're like okay well you've gone to mexico and you didn't get killed you've gone to a lunatic asylum I'm pretty sure you can do this. And she's like, you bet your sweet pippy. <laughs> so she goes off. It becomes this big sensation. It's like her big journey to go around the world. Um, and on November 14th, 1889, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer, and began her 24,899-mile journey. Um, around this time, there was another news, New, York pace, New York newspaper who was sponsoring one Elizabeth Bisland to beat uh, Nellie to the punch. So she kind of had a rival. Oh my gosh. Excuse me. So uh, her travels took her to all these really exotic places. She went through England, um, which is cool, uh, I guess. (laughs) She went to France where she got to meet her. um, (laughs) She kind of fangirled. It was cute. She met Jules Verne, who was like her inspiration for this. She went to Brindisi, which I'm not sure where that is. She went to the Suez Canal, uh, Ceylon, uh, Penang, okay. Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. Uh, 
they the technology had gotten to a point where there were like underwater cable networks so you could mm-hmm. submit telegraphs but in the less uh um developed i'll say parts of the world the it was a little hard to track her, but it was very much like the live tweeting of its time. Like, <laughs> just like, oh my gosh, selfie in like Singapore. I bought a monkey. It's on my back. Here's my friend. Like, I'm in Ceylon. Um, which she actually bought a monkey. That's part of this thing. She was oh like in gosh. Singapore. She's like, I gotta get a souvenir. It's gonna be a monkey. Like, of course. When in doubt, so, get a monkey until yeah. it rips your face off. I think it was cool. I don't know. I didn't see anything about the face ripping here, so I'm going to assume she was fine with it. Uh, She visited a leper colony because, you know, she's a big heart, a heart of gold. Um, So despite some rough weather, she was uh, mostly on schedule, but then um, just kind of choppy seas prevented her. She was two days behind schedule by the time she got to San Francisco. So she's got to make it to the other side of the country to stay on schedule. So the world chips in and they charters her a private. She cheats a little bit. Let's do that. <laughs> she she charters a private train and it just takes her across the country. And she arrives back in Hoboken, New Jersey, on January twenty fifth, eighteen ninety, at three fifty one p.m. There is a huge celebration. It took her seventy two days and six hours to traverse the whole world at the time. Um, and then Bislin almost beat her, but she got waylaid because she took like a bad ship or something. <laughs> and it just became a sensation. She, everyone loved her. They made a board game about oh her. It called Around the World with Nellie Bly. I don't, I'm sure it was pretty simple, but it beats hitting a, a, a hoop with a stick, I guess. <laughs> um, so she, she had this great life. She became like an inventor a little bit. She like, did like this thing with like stacking containers that was cool she uh married a not so good guy who kind of like squandered her wealth um isn't that the truth though for these yeah (laughs) it is but she did she did pretty well for herself and then um she uh passed away in uh 1922 at the age of 57 which is really young so um it's sad but she had this really accomplished life she was an adventurer and a badass and uh really knew how to rock an outfit hold on i'm sending this to you like look at this look how fashion forward this is it's her in this like checkered well-fitted dress with like a newspaper boy cap she's wearing i think she's got an alligator purse did it send oh wait there we go you're gonna have to click on the actual uh thing that's what she looks like that's like her portrait she looks like someone who doesn't take any crap yeah also her signature is awesome yeah it's probably as good as mine which isn't saying something it's very fun yeah so she looks like a fun time but if you want to scroll down you'll see her and i thought that would send it to you directly but i guess not um you'll see her little like checkered coat it's pretty that looks like a pretty practical outfit to wear to travel around the world you know yeah and i guess that was literally all she wore that and a change of underwear which so me um, so I feel that. Oh, I yeah, she was, she was pretty cool. She's a good adventurer. Um, yeah, I, I want to believe that I was her in a past life. Right? That's, yeah. Um, so that's my story, and it's now almost an hour and 20 minutes into this, what I thought was going to be a short episode. So, <laughs> yay, full length. Uh, how do we cap this? I have no, I have no conclusion. Oh, my gosh. Live your life. Don't take crap. That's true. Like, you can be, I mean, 
the reality is you can't be anything because society sucks. But if you do persevere and you're smart and you make connections and you're willing to fight against the BS, um, regardless of your identity, you know, seriously, go out there, get allies, don't take crap from people, complain, (laughs) complain, seriously, like, um, you know, build bridges, wear what uh, you want with people, wear what you want. Exactly. (laughs) No. I mean, like, that's what it's going to take. I mean, for me, like, my dream is I want to be like Josh Gates. I want to have like a TV show where I adventure around the world. And, you know, for who I am, I'm not like a very conventional like man's man with all these adventurers. It's like, you know, like a rugged like Harrison Ford or like a Nathan Drake. I wish, but I'm not. (laughs) Um, And so like that's like I want to be that. I want to live that lifestyle. And like I've got some barriers to break in getting there. Um, and there's so many other people like today women have there's so many glass ceilings that still need to be broken I don't need to tell you this I don't need to mansplain this but like that's just how I feel so oh yeah so I'm sorry to dump all those emotions on you, but. <laughs> oh it's fine yeah I mean these women you should feel inspired to do what the thing that scares you I guess I mean both of us have started a podcast so we're talking to people we don't know and putting our putting ourselves out there so i think that's pretty brave in itself absolutely absolutely maybe like podcasters are like the modern day heroes maybe we'll be like the ones who like start the revolution from our basements yes the revolution (laughs) will not be televised it will be podcasted from a closet probably from a closet (laughs) recording in a closet um all right is there anything you would like to plug i um, thank you so much for coming on this has been so much fun oh it's i love doing research on anything historical so this gives me great joy so, so much joy um yeah i i will plug the podcast my podcast the cult of domesticity uh we're on instagram at the domestic po- or no at the cult of domesticity Twitter and Facebook at The Domestic Podcast. We have a new episode every Thursday unless I'm sick and I can't finish editing. Um, And if you love history, true crime, I mean, we've covered uh, Alexander the Great. We covered uh, Mara Murray, the girl who's disappeared from New Hampshire. Uh, We've covered cult murders. I think of other crazy things we've covered. Um, You know, Ashley and I both have covered cases if you like my favorite murder, we both have done our own hometown murders, which are both really, really messed up. But, you know, so, yeah. Perfect. Everyone <laughs> listen. Um, thank you so much, Courtney. And next week, I do hope to have the episode on Yamashita's Gold Up. And then uh, it's now it's all Nazis from <laughs> here on out. Um, in the podcast world anyway <laughs> we'll make that very clear and um it doesn't end well for them so good yeah. <laughs> anyways uh have a good night and stay adventuring relic is written and produced by me maxwell if you like this episode you can leave a four or five star rating in itunes or a review so more people can come along on the journey connect with us on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod or send us an email at lostreasurepod at gmail.com.